Welcome to this week's episode of Quiddity on the Circe Podcast Network, where we engage in the classical spirit of inquiry. I'm your guide, Brandon LeBlanc. And we have back with us today our music man, John Hodges, uh, composer, teacher, and the director of the Center for Western Studies in Memphis, Tennessee. John, thanks for joining us again today. Very good to be with you again, Brandon. Looking forward to it. I think since we last spoke, you've uh, even done a little teaching to some of my nieces and nephews uh, there in the in the Memphis area through their homeschool co-op. So and that's right. You mentioned that. That's that's right. Yeah, there's a couple of really good uh, 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 homeschool co-ops here in town that are doing great work. And uh, uh, they asked me in once in a while to uh, give a little historical background or talk about uh, art and music. Um birth of the university, various things like that. Uh, so, yeah, I really enjoy w- working with them. Of course, we have one student here at the center. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that I meet with every week, too. Uh, we have a, a gap year program, you know, as you know, uh, that we run. And, you know, the, the the pandemic has kept us from going overseas. But part of the program has always been to go overseas. So uh, this May, we're going to be taking our students back to London and Paris like the uh, normally, like we normally do, but for the last three years, we haven't been able to go. Well, that's exciting to hear that that's returning. Um, I keep hearing yeah, about a lot, of these, a lot of these programs that take kids over, uh, whether they're part of like your gap year program or just the summer programs that some of the universities run are finally getting back to, to that part of their educational program, which I think is so important to go and see and experience some of those places. So, Oh boy, it, it really, it really solidifies a lot of the things during the year. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's different to see some of that art, artwork inside the cathedral, right? Than in than in picture books. Oh man, it's a different experience. Or at the Louvre. I remember the oh. first time I went to the Louvre. I I had been teaching uh, uh, Theodore Jericho's uh, painting of the, the Raft of the Medusa, but I'd only ever seen it in a slide or in a picture in a book, you know. And it turns out it's like twenty three feet long. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> 15 feet tall, you know, and these characters, these pe- the, 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 the figures in the thing are, are larger than life size. So you walk into the room and see this thing and it's really yeah. overwhelming. I remember so there's nothing being, in, in person. I remember being so surprised because, you know, the first time I went, the, the only thing I knew of like really well in the Louvre was, was the Mona Lisa. Right. And it's tiny. Right. I mean, it's like, it's, it's, it's not, but it's this, tiny this wide. and it's now yeah. it's got this glass case around it and a rope. You can't even get very close to it. Um, but it's yeah. in this room filled with like these floor to ceiling tapestries. And when I say floor to ceiling, yeah, a lot of paintings and things in there. You're right. There's a, I think the largest canvas in the Louvre is in the same room. With yeah. Lisa. Yeah. It's a and wedding in Cana by Veronese. And it's massively huge. And those have got to be <laughs> like twenty-five. Yeah, those got to be twenty-five <laughs> foot ceilings or something in that room. It's not. It's, when I say floor yes, ceiling, it's yeah. not. It's not like your house. It's it's massive. It's a gigantic like, it's, room. Yeah, it's it's kind of funny, um, <laughs> but you can get a really good look at any of those because no one else is looking at them. And so you have it all to yourself. If you just turn around, right. you can look at those all day long. So. And they're That's massive. Great. And right outside the, that room in the hallway where they have their Italian paintings mm-hmm. uh, are, are a couple of absolutely magnificent Leonardo da Vinci paintings. And right. almost nobody looking at them. It's really <laughs> funny. And they're they're yeah. tremendous paintings. One called the Madonna of the Rocks. 
Uh, it's a Madonna and child picture with uh, little John the Baptist and Jesus as children, you know, and, mm-hmm. and uh, it's mm-hmm. glorious. It's just glorious. But nobody looking at him, or very few anyway. Yeah, I was talking with, uh, or listening from Matt Bianco one time, talking about how the kind of interaction between the artifact itself and the art and the artist and the audience, and where you know seeing the truth in the art, kind of all those things are in play yeah. at the same time. And he yeah. mentioned the story about how the the Mona Lisa was pretty little little known, little paid attention to uh, in the in the Louvre until an Italian patriot tried to steal it and, and take right. it back home. And suddenly That's everyone right. wanted to see this painting he was trying to steal, but it wasn't uh, Da Vinci's uh, most famous painting at the time. It was, it was, you know, right. it was people walked right past it. So it's funny. It how, was early in the 20th century that it was early in the 20th century that an Italian fellow did actually steal it and <laughs> took it away back to Italy. Uh, and it, it was crazy because he was, I think he got a job as a janitor there in the, in the Louvre and figured a way to, to take it, you know, rolled it up and walked off with it. And uh, he <laughs> made the mistake of trying to fence the thing in Italy. <laughs> as soon as he took it to some art expert, you know, and said, hey, hey you want to bite a Mona Lisa? <laughs> you know, <laughs> the guy. It, fell, that, off, uh, it the, fell off a truck. I don't know. It's uh... <laughs> yeah, it's good to know where it came from, man. Found <laughs> <laughs> in the That's... garbage. That's um, funny. And, but that art, but that art uh, uh, dealer uh, knew very well what he was dealing with. He, no pun intended, and he uh, uh, called the police, and they were able to catch the guy and get the painting back. But it's interesting because you know, this is really not our subject for today. No, but okay. I thought it'd be interesting to, interesting to know the um, the fact is, you know, the, the Mona Lisa is painted by Leonardo da Vinci, who is a famous Italian, right? Not a Frenchman. So what's it doing in the in the in the Louvre Museum? Well, toward the end of his life, Leonardo was invited by Francis I, the king of France, to come and live in France. He was kind of exiled a little from hmm. from uh, Italy. And he brought with him the Mona Lisa, La Gioconda, they call it. And uh, among other things. And, and uh, that's why it's about the time that you start seeing uh, Italian Renaissance looking chateaus built along the Loire River. Huh. Uh, they're all about that time. And he's buried at uh, one of those chateaus in yeah, France. Been. You been, oh, have you been? Oh, right. Well, then, you know, um, um, uh, what do they call it? Luce, I think, something like mm-hmm. that. Um, but it's at Amboise. The the the, the, uh, the uh, chateau is called Amboise. Anyway, he's he's buried there. Well, all of the all, you know his paintings were were uh, given to the Louvre then, right? And the Italians have always said, "Hey, how come you have the Mona Lisa? We want it back." Well, this guy stole it, right, and brought it back to Italy. Yeah, yeah. And to their to their credit, the Italians said, "We're going to return it to the French." And but what they did first was they said, let's do a little tour of Italy with it first and then we'll send it back. And they did. They yeah. Sent it back. His his workshop area there in France was basically like down the hill from the from the from the his um, his patrons. That's right. Castle. Yeah, that, that's, uh, right. that's right. And I think at one yeah. time it was connected like with a passageway. Oh, is that right? 
Yeah. Um, but it's, it's, if you ever, if anybody, I mean, I'm sure you've been, but anybody gets a chance to go, they have great models of some of his, uh, you know, his helicopter design and various things at that place. Yes. Now. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Yes, that's right. That's right. He, he designed a whole lot of things. I understand he designed the first submarine. Oh, okay. Well, and a helicopter. Yeah. Whether yeah, they that, were that ever built, like, I don't, I don't know yeah. whether they were ever built. Um, but it's a great place. idea. Well, uh, like you said, that's that's not why you're here today. But I do enjoy these conversations, so we we will probably yeah, have thanks. more rabbit trails when you come on. Um, uh, I mentioned at the top, this our uh, John Hodges is our our music man. I, I um, mean that in every sense. He he is a composer. Um, we always love having him uh, at the conference where he uh, gives talks, oftentimes around around uh, music, uh, music education. Um, and so if you, you caught the earlier episode uh, a few months ago, um, John has agreed to come on regularly and uh, help us to hear, give us ears to hear uh, with with some of the great compositions um, in our musical canon. And so uh, that's what he's here for today. Uh, John, do you want to introduce the work we're going to be looking at today or listening sure. to, I should say? Sure. Uh, yeah, I was thinking it'd be fun to talk about a piece that I love very much, uh, but isn't well known. Uh, it's by the composer Leonard Bernstein. Uh, maybe you'll know him from his uh, West Side Story musical. He he uh, uh, famous for that. If you've not heard of him before, I find that people don't know him as well as they used to. Uh, but he mm -hmm. probably is the most famous American conductor uh, in the history of our country. He uh, was the music director of the uh, New York Philharmonic for many years, and uh, he, uh, he had done, he's passed away now, but he had done many concerts with uh, the Vienna Philharmonic and with all sorts of other orchestras around the country. He was, or in, around the world, I mean, uh, he was in terrific demand uh, everywhere, La Scala, he would conduct in various places. And uh, so he was, was a tremendous success as a conductor, but he also composed. And I think he always wanted to compose um, and uh, didn't always have the time to, but he wrote three symphonies and he wrote uh, um, uh, quite a number of other works, including, of course, the famous West Side Story. But this piece I want to talk about today is called the Chichester Psalms. It's a three movement work that's very short, really. It's only 20 minutes long. Uh, and, and it was written uh, for Chichester Cathedral in England. It seemed that every uh, year or so they would have a, they would hire a composer to write something uh, about the Psalms for a, uh, a, uh, a, an event at the Chichester Cathedral. And this year they gave that commission to Leonard Bernstein. I think this was 1963, maybe. Yeah, I think it's 63. Maybe it was 64. Don't hold me to that, but I think 63. Anyway, um, he had just come off of a sabbatical where he was trying to compose in what they call serial technique. He had a lot of friends who were... Uh, interested in serial technique, Roy Harris, Aaron Copeland, uh, Stravinsky, Igor Stravinsky, um, uh, who am I thinking of? Um, a number of other uh, serial technique composers in the mid uh, 20th century. Uh, 
And they were sort of egging him on to write in serial technique. If you don't know about serial technique, I don't want to take up a lot of time, but it's it's uh, what they call 12-tone music. It's a, it's an artificial, it's a substitute for uh, the, the normal major and minor modes that we use for uh, composition. Uh, it, was, it was started by a fellow called Arnold Schoenberg earlier in the century. But by the mid-century, a lot of composers had been trying their hand at this technique, and they were getting trying to get Bernstein to do the same thing. Well, is that what's referred uh, he, to as atonal? Sometimes, well, I think the right thing. It, 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 yeah, it's it's, def, it's atonal, but it's actually kind of beyond atonal. What I mean is, you can write atonal music without any tonal center. Eventually, you run into problems uh, formally. Without cadences in music, without a tonal center, you can't have cadences. And without cadences, you can't form. Mm -hmm. And that problem was a problem for Schoenberg and his his students. Uh, Alban Baird was a big atonal composer, uh, mid-century, and uh, and uh, 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 Anton Weber, and then is another one. But uh, those guys came up up with a new system to sort of take the place of tonality that that uses the 12 pitches of the, of the octave in a certain order. And you craft this order yourself as the composer. You come up with what they call a row and you craft this, this row uh, in whatever way you like. But then you, the, the limitation of the system is that you have to use every one of those 12 pitches before you can use the first one again. So it's a kind of artificial uh, tonality. Uh, it makes for some interesting compositions, certainly intellectually interesting compositions. I don't know that they've ever really taken off as, as popular in any sense of the word. Um, but, and the, but back to my story about Bernstein, Bernstein was being sort of egged on to, to, to write in this new style. And he said, after trying it for a while, he just couldn't do it. It was just not in him. Um, this this uh, 12-tone technique is is too uh, separate from the, the the sort of vibrations of the earth, the, the, the way God made the world to vibrate in tonality. And his heart just was never in it. <laughs> so when this commission came along, this, this commission from uh, uh, Chichester Cathedral, he decided to go back to tonality. And so this piece of music is what he told me one time was his most B-flat major piece. <laughs> Returning back to tonality, it was kind of coming home for him. Uh, and even though it sounds very modern and has some very dissonant moments in it, uh, it's very tonal. And uh, and so it doesn't fit the sort of avant-garde. But he didn't care about that. He was saying, uh, I, I really wanted to be able to go back to tonality and write tonal music again. So this was a piece that he loved. Uh, in fact, he told me one time that this was uh, his favorite composition of his own. So that's it a lot. Any questions about that? Shall we? No, I think let's let's jump into the piece. Well... The piece is in three movements, and each movement uh, combines two psalms together. One psalm uh, often is just a piece, a verse or two. The other psalm is in its entirety. And what we've got in the first movement is 
the opening of Psalm 100 that says, um, uh, awake, psaltery, and harp, I will awake the dawn, meaning let's let's get together and, and celebrate and worship God and grab all of our instruments and so on. And then it goes to another psalm uh, that uh, that is um, all about uh, the celebrating of of uh, uh, worship. It's in seven beats in the bar. <clears throat> one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. One. It's a very Hebrew feeling dance going on. That's the first movement. The second movement starts out with just harp and a soloist. And the soloist is a young boy, a boy alto. Uh, and he is, in a sense, representing King David as a young boy. And the opening uh, psalm is Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The other psalm in the second movement is Psalm 2 that starts, uh, why do the nations rage? Maybe you know that you know that song. So what you've got is a contrast between the gentle, peaceful sort of pastoral Psalm 23 and the beautiful melody that he has this little boy sing, followed by the women singing in the, in the ensemble. And then suddenly into this calm sort of thing, uh, you get these men start with uh, why do the nations rage? And they're very angry. They are the nations representing the nations. And you get this incredible contrast between the two. And I want you to listen carefully as you go through it when we play it, because I want you to see which side wins in that competition. Then in the third movement, it starts off with uh, a very dissonant string ensemble uh, uh, introduction that sounds like it's the, 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 the trouble of the world, the, the, uh, the harshness of reality in a fallen world. And then it settles down quietly to a, a very peaceful setting of Psalm 131. Psalm 131 is, um, let's see, how does it go? Uh, Lord, Lord, I, um, I do, oh, I should, should pull it out and, and, and read it for you. It's, um, I don't al allow myself to consider things that are too lofty for me. Um, he says, uh, I, I'm, I'm like a weaned child, like a child weaned from its mother at peace. And the whole thing is very much at peace in contrast to that opening instrumental part. And then the second psalm that you hear in the last movement, just the very beginning of Psalm 133. And it is uh, the, the verse, uh, behold how good and pleasant it is uh, when brothers dwell together in unity. And it's the most beautiful, peaceful, delightful ending. Throughout the piece, though, he has a, a melody that he harmonizes in different ways throughout, throughout in various po points in the, in the work. It, it goes, the, the basic melody is, Bum, 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 bum. Those, 
those notes. One, two, three, four, five. And then takes that little figure and it moves it up a whole step. Bom, 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 like that. And then it turns it upside down. And it goes, bom, 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 bom. We're back to the first note again. That's where we started. Bom, 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 bom. I want you to hear, listen for that. I'll point it out as we go along. Uh, but that's a sort of melody that holds the whole piece together. He he harmonizes it in a very a very uh, 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 dissonant way to begin with. When he has the chorus sing, uh, um, "Awake, psaltery and harp, I will awake the dawn." It's it's a uh, it's a alarm clock kind of wake up call. <laughs> and then at the very end of the first movement, you hear it again, hidden in the background, but it's there. I'll point it out to you as we go. Uh, and then in the in the introduction to the third movement, uh, you hear that tune played over and over again in different um, uh, different harmonies. And they're often very dissonant, very uncomfortable. Uh, and it's mixed together with little excerpts from the second movement, the melody that the little boy sings about Psalm 23. So it kind of goes back and forth between those two things. And then at the very end of the piece, when you hear Psalm 133, how, how behold how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity, he writes that same melody again. But this time it's a, a, a harmonization that is so beautiful and peaceful. That it's like a resolution of all those tension points in the earlier part of the, of the, of the work. So that kind of holds the piece together. There are lots of things to talk about as it goes by. So I might play it for you. I'm not sure I can talk and play it at the same time. So what I'm going to do is play one movement and talk about it. And then okay. play the second movement and talk about that, like that, okay? Um, and then you get a chance to hear. They're not very long. Each one is maybe seven minutes, something like that. So can we can we try it? What do you think? Yeah, let's go for it. Okay. By the way, this is Leonard Bernstein conducting the performance, too. So you should be getting a performance that sounds pretty much like he wanted it to sound. Here's the first movement.
so there's the first movement. Well, could you hear that it was in seven? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, one. The way I teach this to people when I'm doing this in a class is I get them to tap on their desks like this, left, right, left, right, left, right, left, right, just like that. And then I get them to think, to, to accent the, the left hand for three times. So you go left, right, left, right, left, and then just go right, left without accents and do the same thing on right, right, left, right, left, right. So what you get is something that goes left, right, left, right, left, right, left, right, left, right, left, right, left. Right, left, right, left, right, left, right, right, left, right, left, right, left, right, like that. And that's how you get sevens. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. One, two, three, four, five, like that. And if you can imagine that, then sped up. That's what's going on in the music. And so it has a kind of dance feel to it, even though you said it would be offbeat all the time, but it's always, you know, left, left, right, right, like that, with that extra step in between. And it makes for a kind of a, but it feels very, very Jewish, like a Jewish celebration. And of course, Leonard Bernstein was Jewish. And so he's very familiar with all the sort of Jewish national uh, uh, rhythms and music and modes and things like that. So it's very, very, um, um, uh, uh, what's the word I want? Ethnic sort of feel uh, to it, like a folk music so that, feel almost. Yeah, exactly. A folk music kind of feel. It, uh, Israeli folk music, uh, Jewish folk music. And I hope you could hear that it was also not in English. It was <laughs> in Hebrew. The whole thing is in Hebrew. It's in the original okay. language. So you have you have uh, at the end of it, it goes. And that's the end, that's the last note you heard him saying. Kitov Adonai is the Lord is good in Hebrew. So it's all about that celebration. There's a the middle of the psalm goes, um, enter his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. And when he writes that, he has them all go bam bam da da bam bam da da bam bam da da bam bam da da like that. And it's this just raucous, raucous entering into his gates with thanksgiving and praising his name. You see, into his courts with praise. So that's the first movement. You could hear the beginning. I think too the uh, awake, psaltery, and harp. They uh, they they give you some pretty uh, tension filled, not yeah, tension filled, yeah. maybe, but, but dissonant, dissonant sort of yeah. sound to wake you up. It's a it's a call to call to to wake up. It's like the horn blast, right? Almost. Yeah, exactly. It, like a shofar blast, exactly right. Like just like that. Is it seven eight time? Seven four. Seven four. Seven time. four. Okay. Mm -hmm. Each quarter note, seven quarter notes in a bar. Okay. And if you listen to that Kitov Adonai at the end, it was Kitov Adonai. Remember that tune? 
Mm-hmm. That's the very beginning of it. from the from the opening number, the opening of it, where the he's calling you to to wake up, to wake up the harp and the psalter, and be ready to to celebrate. That's the that's the melody. Bum 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 bum, and then he has the timpanist play it. Bum 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 bum, like that. It's so it comes back o- over and over again throughout the piece. And at the very the very climax of this um, is that that tune again. Even though the 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 tune for the for the melody of that psalm is bom Can you hear that? Sorry about my voice. I'm not really warmed up today. But you get the idea anyway. That's okay. That's, uh, that's it's that bum 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 that I kept hearing. They're out there. Yeah, you, yeah, I, yeah. Bum, 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 bum. You, when you watch him conduct it, he he he's, <laughs> he dances anyway. He always would dance when he conducts, <laughs> you know, kind of going like this. So he's always going bum, 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 bum. And you, you see his shoulder kind of this way and that way for the nice. for the extra beat in there. It's great fun to see him conduct. I'll make sure I, I post that. Can... I'll make sure I post that link yeah, yeah. to the full to the full so, piece in the. That'd be good. So they can see the see him actually conduct it. It's a good little production, little performance. Um, I don't know whether I mentioned it or not, but he was my teacher. He was my my conducting teacher. He invited me to study with him. So that was great honor to be able to work with yeah. him many years ago now. He's been he's passed away for a long time now. He died in gee, ninety-one, something like that, maybe mm-hmm. ninety-two. Anyway, uh okay, so that's the first movement. So you've gotten a taste of that. That's the celebratory movement. The second movement is the one that starts with the little boy. And, and what, what better accompaniment for David to sing uh, Psalm 23 than with the harp? And that's how he starts it. Shepherd. 
Then the men come in. And that's how it ends. Did you catch which of the two get to win the competition? It's, it's the little boy. Yeah. It's the little, it's the little quiet tune. It's the Psalm 23 tune that calms and quiets all of that anger and all of that rage that comes from the Gentiles. Why do the Gentiles rage? Why do the nations they talk about the Gentiles? Why are the Gentiles so angry? Now, if you know the rest of that psalm, way, uh, it says that, uh, that God laughs at them. He's not taking them seriously, all their rage and plotting and planning and conniving and all that to try and tear down God and tear down his people. He says he laughs at them. He's, he's not threatened at all. And it's that sort of spirit that comes out, I think, in the uh, Psalm 23 tune. So the music represents or reflects the kind of, that kind of spirit. But if you listen carefully at the very end, and in that last note, that, that last peaceful note, you hear the orchestra very quietly play. Which is the men's tune, right? 
So there's an underlying tension still. In other words, we're not out of the woods yet. The, the, the fallen world is still a fallen world, and there's still going to be tension. There's still going to be difficulty. And it's there very clear. And the very end, the timpanist plays very softly. And then the bass drum and the timpani together go. And that's the end of it. Yeah. Yikes. So it's not over yet. It's not over yet. But it's a beautiful timpani, little tune. Yeah. That timpani almost feels like a... Um, because you're in that quiet point, it almost is like the yeah. like a like a heartbeat you can hear because it's so quiet, and then yes. something else comes, right? It's like, Dum. yeah, yes. There's a there's still a danger on the horizon. It's not it's not over yet, uh, and yeah, it is like a little like a little heartbeat like that. But then it's very loud. Yeah, like yeah. A, and then the next thing, right? Yeah, like a blade come down below to the to the face, you know. Anyway, that's uh, the second movement. Now, the beginning of the third movement, I told you, is instrumental. Uh, and it's uh, it's a combination of the tunes that you've heard so far, harmonized in some very tension-filled ways. Listen for the da-da-dee-da-da tune to be played, but also listen for da 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 which is the little boy's tune from uh, Psalm 23. It's in there too. But listen to how it's harmonized. It's not at all at peace.
And that's how it ends. Could you hear the tune at the end that they were singing? Da, da, dee, da, da. It's very slow, but it's harmonized differently. Da, da, dee, da, da, dee. We're back to the first note again. And after he's done that, then all they can sing is Amen. And the whole, co the whole chorus sings in octaves, Amen. It's just one note. But around them, the orchestra plays bomb, bomb, bee, bomb, bomb, one last time. It's so and that's how that's how it ends. It's so subtle. It's just it's just ends so perfectly. It's glorious. Um, I, I don't know that I gave you all the 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 uh, psalms themselves. Let me tell you what they are. Um, Psalm. Um, the opening was Psalm 57, verse 8. Awake, my soul, awake, harp and lyre, I will awake the dawn. And then all of Psalm 100. Bom, 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 bom. That, that every, every word of Psalm 100 to the end. And it ends with Kitob Adonai, the Lord is good. The second one, I think I told you, is Psalm 23, all of it, although it's broken up. And uh, just the first couple of verses of Psalm 2, Why the Nation Rage. And then in the third, uh, the third uh, movement, you get Psalm 131. And I want to read it to you because it's, I, I butchered it when I told you a minute ago. Um, 131. It's very short, but it's, it's amazing. It goes like this in the ESV. My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have calmed and quieted myself. I'm like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. And that's what all of that sort of rocking music, like like fatal rocking music, felt like uh, in in the uh, after the instrumental part. It goes da dee da 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 dee da dee da 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 like that. Well, it's in ten four. <laughs> it's in five and five together. Um, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, one, two, three, four, five, like that. So it feels like you're you're going rocking three and two and three and two and three and two, like that. A little longer on the one part and a little short on the other. The the rocking can go one way a little further than it goes the other way or something. Maybe the crib isn't completely balanced. I don't know. But it's a beautiful kind of gentle, flowing, uh, pulsing sort of thing. And it's supposed to feel like a child on his mother's shoulder after having eaten. He's perfectly happy. He's just about to go to sleep. He's a weaned child. He's, he's uh, at peace. And he's not troubling himself with things that are too great for him. 
And it's a, it's a great deal of wisdom, I think, for Christians to remember that, that God is in charge of this broken universe. He's the one that's going to bring about good in the end. And we can be at peace. We can be at, at our faith allows us to trust him to take care of those things that are way beyond us. They're way beyond us. Above my pay grade, as I used to say. And then the very end is um, that a cappella part, the part without instruments, was Psalm 133. It's the first verse. Um, how good and pleasant it is when God's people, in some translations, when brothers uh, live together in unity. Uh, in the 60s, there was a lot of disunity. There still is racial disunity, economic disunity. People feel feel like there's a lot of tension in the world. Now, Bernstein took the moment where he had he could sing and he could write about these psalms, and he chose very carefully the verses that he wanted to put to put to music. And I think it was a a call to peace, a call in the '60s to to peace. So you can you can imagine the sort of '60s. Um, love in revolution kind of thing that was going that was burgeoning at the time and i think he had his finger on that pulse for better or worse mind you i'm not saying it was necessarily a christian thing but it was a a desire on the part of of uh, young people especially i think to uh to uh oppose the war to stop the war they the vietnam war was was raging uh and um to to uh Bring people together, bring youth uh, um, unity, and so he was drawing on that. I think at the, at the time it was a sort of timely um, application of the psalms. I hope that makes sense. Could you hear in there all the tempo? The not the tempo, but the timing that I'm talking about. Yeah, I was thinking about that. Yeah, that ten four where you're talking about uh, it. it and and it's in, in groups of five. It it almost feels like a like a that rocking is almost like a a waltz with like two beats of rest. Something like dun dun yeah. dun one two dun 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 one two. You know, it's it's kind of I can even right. feel that right. like you're talking about a rocking of the baby that swaying motion, right? Where you're just kind of this big swoops and so. It's it it has uh, it's basically the accompaniment is two pitches. That you go back and forth between even so it's dee daw dee daw dee daw dee daw dee daw dee daw like that. Only you emphasize first the one and then the other, like in the seven four thing where you mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. emphasize three lefts and then three rights. It's one, it's one, two, three, four, five, 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 like that. So it's kind of going back and forth between the two. It works out in the end to feel kind of right, uh, normal, but it's uh, it's actually in in a very strange meter. You don't usually yeah. hear 10, 10, 4, but that's what he wrote. Yeah, I have some limited, you know, music playing background but i that that 10 four seems like it'd be a tough one to get into for sure as the, as the, as the musician so and he in the middle of it if you heard he wrote a um a a quartet solo uh, instrumental quartet for cellos for four cellos and it's a beautiful moment 
where they they play da dee da 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 dee da dee da da da. They take the tune that the guys have been uh, the the chorus has been singing, but they do it in a little quartet, like a chamber ensemble, for a minute, and it's very tender and very quiet. Peaceful. Yeah, I don't think I caught that it was a quartet, but I love cello is one of my favorite things. Mm, I can my, listen to the cello all, all day all day long. Um, so yeah, I did enjoy that. And he he um, he he writes at the very end of it. This this he he wanders away from his tonality. He 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 steps out. He goes in a direction you don't expect in those soloists that were singing at the very end. And he he has the the soprano go higher and higher and higher, reaching up higher and like that, as though he's reaching for. Uh, I say he because it was a little boy, but it was a soprano, boy soprano, reaching for uh, um, for heaven almost, you know, reaching mm-hmm. up and up and up. And then finally, at the very last moment, it all resolves back to the tonality that your your ear is expecting. He does a great job sort of fooling your ear for a minute. And then out of the blue, out of a place you didn't expect, he comes back home again. And it's a great resolution. It's beautiful. So I'm, I'm always excited for people to get to know this piece. I, I wish we performed it more often. I think it's a, I think it's a really good work. It's, uh, you know, it's not Mozart, but it's not, uh, or, or Brahms, but it is, um, but it is a 20th century piece. that's very accessible, I think. And, uh, and one that mattered a lot to the guy who wrote it, I think. And, uh, so I'm glad for everybody to know it. And of course it's scripture too. So. Uh, of course, it's in Hebrew, and so it's a little tough to hear uh, what the words are. But if you have the translation in front of you as you listen to it, then you can you can make sense of it. Well, I will definitely so put the the link to the full performance um, in the great, show notes. People can listen to it straight through after after listening to us a little bit. And I'll just put a plug in for everybody out there. You know, as we go through these pieces, if you have opportunities to go hear them live somewhere uh, you know john said he wishes one was was performed more often more often um if you have a chance i encourage you to go do it after after the last show when we talked about the marriage of figaro um it turned out it was playing oh, yeah. uh, about a month later here in houston and so i, I went to kobe and, and our daughters and uh never been to the opera don't know italian but the houston opera here does a good job of having that having that translation kind of running well way above the scene for you but um just yeah, they have a translation, don't they? Super. Yeah, yeah. Super, uh, yeah. So That's to go it. see it in person was just was just fantastic. And so uh, if you have a chance, as we talk about these pieces, to find a time or place to go hear them live, uh, don't don't skip it. I agree. And can I just make a, a, a comment about this particular performance? This was a, I think, a Polish group, Polish orchestra and and chorus. Uh, that Bernstein was conducting. I've never heard this production before, um, but he did a recording of it back in the 60s that I think is better performance. I think he would have said it was a better performance too. I'm not just criticizing his performance, but I think they didn't play as well as they should have. And so I would suggest you go back to, uh, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll find that old recording and uh, I'm sure it's on YouTube as well. I'll give you that link. It won't be video. It'll just be audio, but it'll give you, a, I think, a smoother performance, a more uh, cohesive okay. uh, performance. 
performers. But it's good. It's fun to see him actually conduct it and yeah, see yeah. his face light up and, you know, all that when when they're doing it. I love hearing live performances. And I, I don't mean to be uh, casting aspersions at this con- this performance so much, but is but he did this studio recording that I think was much smoother. So I'd like you to hear okay. that one too. Better, yeah, better. I'll, I'll make sure to post both of those. Um, it is fun though. It's, it's, it's rare probably that we would get to with pieces that, uh, to watch the, the composer conduct it, uh, yeah. you know, I for most of the kind of things we would talk cool. about. So it's fun to have video of that available. Right. Well, so, um, Go ahead. No, thank you for having me back on. I look forward to our next time. Yeah, I was just going to remind everybody to check out uh, the Center for Western Studies as well. We'll post a link again. Uh, on the last show, you, you can hear John give uh, a little more description of that. We'll try and talk about it some more as we go along uh, on these shows, too. But it's a great opportunity for students, particularly uh, you know looking for a gap year program, to t- take a break uh, before going off to college or, or to prepare themselves to go off for college. Would probably be a better way to say it. And and um, I've you know talked to several people who've been part of it in the past uh, that can't sing its praises high, highly enough. So uh, please do check that out as well, right. parents out there, if you have kids. And thank you, Brandon. I appreciate that. We we have a good group, I think, uh, and we, we're taking an uh, application starting in April for uh, next fall. So okay. uh, if anybody would like to apply, you can go to our website, uh, centerws.com and uh, see the application form on there and a lot of information about what we're doing. So that's a great way to get involved. Okay. Well, I will make sure that I'll get posted in there. And like, like John said, that applications are opening up soon. So take a look. Thanks again for joining us, uh, John. I look forward to doing it again. My great pleasure. And if you want to hear more from John in the, in this capacity, uh, several of his talks are available through the Cersei website and through our streaming uh, option. Uh, from over the years, there's there's some of my favorites. Um, I was talking with our mutual friend um, Greg Wilbur at at New College Franklin uh, just a few weeks ago at a conference. I, I still remember hit your one of the first talks I ever went to, where you um, were showing us what happens with the octaves and the waves with a, with a long. Most some of our audience might even remember these, oh. but the long, the, the spiral. Um, it's phone cord. Telephone, the, telephone cord. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Telephone yes. cord. So that was one of my favorite talks. Physics. Yeah. Showing us the physics uh-huh. of, of sound. So yeah, uh, please yeah. do check those That's out as well insane. on our, on our website. So most people don't know what that telephone cord is anymore. No, no. I, I noticed young people say, what is that? <laughs> Never well, well, Greg that. was about to show some similar stuff in a talk he was giving at this conference. And he had like, I think a slinky. Oh, yeah. And I said, I mean, yeah, oh, that's a good cord. One. And I said, I don't even know if you can get those anymore. He said, you can, you can find them. <laughs> he said, he's found those long phone calls. So anyway, all right. Well, thank you again. And thank you all for joining us on Quiddity as we refreshed ourselves at Systems of Learning Dog long ago, drawing from springs too deep for taint. You can send your comments and questions to podcast at Cersei Institute. Uh, you can also join the conversation uh, on the new uh, spot for all our, our podcast communities uh, on circle.so. We have a space there for quiddity, and that link will be in the show notes as well. I hope you'll join us next week for another episode, and be sure to check out the other shows on the Cersei Podcast Network. <laughs>